Hi there. I'm in a pitch black house right now as there's a severe windstorm that I didn't know it was coming. I didn't know we were expecting a severe windstorm tonight. There's been a lot of rain, but it took the power out. It took the power out for a minute or so earlier, and then it came back on and then totally wiped it out. It's been off ever since for quite a while. I appreciate it, though. I'm actually happy the power's out. And the wind terrifies me. I think the wind is the most terrifying element, the most beautiful and terrifying element. And in many ways, I worship the wind. One of the reasons I worship the wind is it's completely invisible. And you don't think of it as invisible because you see its effects. You see it blow things. You hear it. So it's not that the wind isn't sensory. You can hear it in the air. And really it is the air. And you can see it blow things. You can see it move things. You can see it shake things, but you can't ever actually see that wind. And because of that, I see the wind as the most occult element. And you can think of the word occult in a spiritual sense. But you can also think of the word occult based on its most basic definition, which is hidden. The wind is hidden in that way in that it is invisible. You can't actually see it. You can only see what it impacts. And when you think of occultism in a spiritual sense, it's very similar. Because with the occult, you generally only see its impact. You generally only feel its impact. It is very much felt. In the same way the wind is felt, the occult is felt. But it goes beyond the occult. Even though I consider it the most occult element, it goes beyond simply occult. Because, I mean, it is natural. And I've been listening to it. I, I meditated. I haven't meditated for days. I haven't meditated since, I believe, last Thursday. Friday was Elvis's birthday, and ever since Friday, I was in a frenzy. I woke up Friday, and I was reminded of the fact that it was Elvis's birthday. I don't believe I meditated that day. I believe that that was when the frenzy started. Some might call it a manic state. I would just call it a frenzy. Beginning Friday morning, I remember having that energy of just... Okay, this is going to be a frenzy. And that frenzy continued all day Friday, all night, because I couldn't sleep. All day Saturday. And Saturday was the worst when it came to sleep. I didn't fall asleep until after 7 a.m. after being up all night. There was no real influence of caffeine. I was simply lit up. I was activated. Almost like if you turn a light switch, if you flick a light switch on, how the light is simply on. That's how I felt Friday and especially Saturday. And Sunday was the day when that switch just got turned off. And that was a bad day for me. Very bad. 
not emotionally bad, but just I physically bad when you get such little sleep, when you regret arguing with people, when you come down from a frenzy. Unfortunately, my friend Anna came over. She helped me out. But it was an intense couple of days, and you know I haven't meditated since. And I told myself too the last few days, like I'm not going to meditate. I'm going to go through a little window here where I don't meditate because I don't have to. As I've said before, there's this kind of catch twenty two with meditation where you meditate so you don't have to meditate. And do you ever actually reach a point where you don't have to meditate? I don't know. But sometimes I think it's good to not do it. And in some strange way, the last few days, it felt almost punitive to not meditate because I was in such a frenzy and then I experienced such a crash. I know meditation probably would have helped with that. When people use meditation in a practical sense, you know, a lot of people, even secular people, use it as a chance to kind of calm their anxiety, clear their head. For me, it's not secular, but I could have used it in that secular sense to kind of recalibrate myself, but I purposely didn't do it. And now with the power going out, I said to myself, I can go upstairs and read. I'm reading Rob Roy and I'm almost done. It's a great book. As I've mentioned before, I'm trying to revisit many of the classics or not, not even revisit, simply visit them for the first time. And I found reading about Scotland is very interesting. I like the clan. I like, I like the, um, the whole clan system is very interesting to me. I like the book Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson and Rob Roy by Sir Walter Scott. Uh, to me, it, while it's a very different book, it hits very similarly. Those are actually very similar books in many ways. In that they both involve a young man who's dealing with his family's money or estate. I relate to that right now. And it, he ends up in Scotland in both cases and gets caught up in the clan wars and Scotland's rebellion against England. I don't know that I'm really doing the story justice or describing it accurately. It's not important. But I thought about going up and reading Rob Roy, but I said, you know what? The power's completely out. I'm hearing heavy wind outside. Now's the time to meditate. Now's the time to simply absorb the elements from the inside. And to go back to wind, it does terrify me. I live near the woods. I live right next to the woods. There's a trail immediately behind my house. Whenever there's a windstorm, if you go back there, you'll often find that trees have fallen. And I actually heard a tree fall. I heard a tree fall while I was meditating. I believe I heard another one further away. I heard what sounded like it was probably a small tree falling. And then I heard a much louder thud down the street. So there may have been multiple trees that fell. And branches hit the house. You know, you hear branches hit the house. And every time there is a windstorm and you hear branches hitting the house, 
you think the biggest branch in the world smacked the house, and then you go out the next day, and it's just tiny branches. But just the fact that this invisible force does that, this invisible force carries things. This invisible force that seems to come from nowhere. You know, you think about the ocean. The ocean constantly has wind churning. You think when you climb a mountain, when you go somewhere high up, you're more likely to experience wind. The wind tends to exist strongest in the purest of places in that way. And there is a purity to it. You know, if you've, if you've exercised and worked your way up into a sweat, you know, I remember football practice when I was younger, where you're just sweating, you're tired, your coach is making you run, and you feel the wind against your face, and that's a feeling of purity. It's an incredible feeling of purity, or you think about a winter wind. I love the feeling of a winter wind when you're just out in it. Especially when you're running, because when you're running, you make the wind that much stronger. Not that you actually make the current outside of you that much stronger, but if you're running into the wind or running against it, it seems to increase the sensation one way or another. So your movement affects your experience within the wind. And it can be so icy, it can be so cold, it can make you so cold on a hot day. Every once in a while there will be a hot day where you still have wind. And that's pretty incredible because it cools you down. And you think about the fact that we generate wind. We have fans in our house. We have these artificial means, these artificial ways of generating wind. And of course the power is out right now. And one thing that I find so interesting is now that we have these smartphones, these, these little magic wands, they work. You, know, you can't charge them, so you have to use them sparingly, but they work. You can access the internet. You can call people. You can message people. So to people who phone shame, to people who you know, try to downplay the magic of smartphones... It's interesting that they are often the only thing that works when the power is out. But that you must still use them sparingly. Because they'll run out of juice. They're going to run out of juice. And I mean, I've known people to drive around and charge their phones just so they can keep using them. But when the power is out, I, I mean, I, of course, use my phone sparingly. And I mean, I don't even know that I could leave my house right now. You know, the garage stops working. I have an electronic garage, electric garage. I know that you can open it, but you have to pull some switch. You have to unlock it. I'm not going to do that. But it is interesting to me that you can use your phone. Not that I want to. I'm using it right now to record, which is just adds a little bit to it. You know, that just adds a little bit to the whole power of the phone. The fact that I can document this experience right now.
and of course verify that it's still recording. 1233. It's 1233 at night. And I think it's funny too, because tomorrow I have an appointment. The furnace guy is coming to do their scheduled maintenance. And of course they can't do that if the power's not back on by then. I assume it will be. Who knows though? You don't know. Every now and again, the power will be out for days. You just don't know. But it's interesting to me that the thing that, you know, a furnace simulates fire. You know, it's not the fireplace. But it kind of, you know, it simulates fire in the sense that it's what keeps your house warm. I mean, even my fireplace can't keep the whole house warm. And I can't even use the fireplace because it's it's one of those gas fireplaces with a light switch. And I can't use it because it had a leak and I can't afford to to get it fixed. And I actually couldn't even find anybody who fixes this model. So my furnace is very much my fire. But the furnace sure isn't working right now. The furnace sure ain't working right now. So it's funny to me that, you know, you can't use your fake fire, your furnace to keep the house warm. But you can use your little smartphone, your little magic wand. In meditating right now, and I don't want to talk too much about it. It was my standard meditation, but I felt like it was a little more... Well, I didn't leave myself. And it's been a long time since that's happened. And that Because that was the experience I had initially with meditation, where I found that I was able to actually leave myself and have these little visions, like glimpses of visions that came to me in the forms of phrases and just fleeting visuals, almost like falling into a trance where you're starting to dream, but not quite. And when I told people about that, you know, they thought, oh, maybe you were just falling asleep. But no, that's not what it actually is. And it's what Buddhists refer to as going to the movies. And they tell you not to get caught up in it. And I used to have a journal where I would write down the phrases that would come to me. I would write down the visuals that would come to me. And I didn't attach myself to him too much. I didn't try to read into him too much, but I did want to document him partially because there were some really cool ideas, some really cool phrases that would come to me. And my meditation used to be a lot more freeform as well, where I was trying out different things, trying out different mantras, trying out extended periods of silence. Whereas now I have a series of mantras, you could say, And it hasn't changed for quite a while. I'd say it's been probably a year and a half since I've changed it up. And I don't really leave myself the opportunity to... I don't leave myself the opportunity to leave myself, is what I would say. And I think one of the reasons for that is... I think I was attached to that idea of going to the movies, or or I've heard other people refer to it as the light show. Because as exciting as that was, as much of a breakthrough as that was, and as much as that communicated to me that something was happening, and that reinforced the discipline, that's what made me want to keep meditating early on, was the fact that I didn't know what was going to happen. It wasn't simply sitting there with my eyes closed, calming down, following my bliss. 
It was that something entirely unpredictable would happen, and it wouldn't happen every time. And speaking of time, it could go on for very long periods of time. Because when you leave yourself like that, five minutes can turn into 40 minutes in the blink of an eye. But not even the blink of an eye, because my eyes never open. So you simply get into that state of mind. But in this case tonight, I'd say this is one of the more involved meditations that I've had. And while I didn't leave myself, while I didn't transcend, and I wasn't wanting to, I was able to really hear the elements, really hear the wind. And with everything going on in the world, you know, it's not one of those things where it's not one of those things where I'm sitting here thinking, oh, of course there's a windstorm and the power's out. Of course there's a windstorm and the power's out when Trumpsfeld's getting impeached and there's political violence. You know, I don't think of it that way. I don't think of it with a direct relationship to current events. But it does feel somehow fitting coming, it, it does feel somehow fitting on a personal level coming on the heels of this frenzy that I was in and the crash. And today, I would say today is the best day I've felt since the frenzy. Because during the frenzy, I felt great. I felt a little too good. I was high on myself. I was high on everything going on. And just today as a whole, I, I would say, I felt myself kind of getting back to normal while feeling a certain amount of dread and anxiety about real life business I have to deal with. But on a personal level, it does feel right that there is a windstorm right now. And that it terrifies me and it excites me. And that whether I like it or not, I'm in a pitch black house. I'm hearing little sounds. It's hard to tell what's what. It's hard to tell which sound is what. And what sound is which. But yeah, I will always find wind intriguing. And speaking of Scotland, I went there when I was 15. And a lot of that trip is a blur for me. A lot of my trip to Europe was a blur. I went to all the British Isles. I went to England, Wales, Ireland, Scotland. But one of the most striking memories I have is Edinburgh Castle, you know, being up on that rock. It's the closest I've ever been to experiencing some sort of fantasy world. But it's not a fantasy world. It's the basis for a lot of fantasy. But you really could visualize a dragon there. And this is, this is, of course, before popular HBO TV shows. Nowadays, you mention a dragon and people think of that, which is okay. You know, I mean, that was a good show. I watched it and I liked most of it. You know, like everybody else, I liked the first five seasons. And after that, it went to... Went downhill. Um, but... Uh, 
you know, you mentioned a dragon now and people think of that, but being at Edinburgh Castle, this was 2001, just a couple months before 9-11. I believe this was July 2001 that I went there. So it was the last time, that's kind of fitting to me, the last time I experienced pre-9-11 air travel was going to Europe, my only trip to Europe. But Edinburgh Castle was so windy. You know, speaking of being high up and experiencing the wind, it was so desolate. It was so beautiful. It was so, um, it was marvelous. I don't use that word very often, but it was marvelous. But it wasn't lush. It was like a skeleton. Edinburgh Castle was like being inside a giant skeleton. And the wind was so harsh and the rock was so, there was an austerity to it. And the way that it overlooked the town. Just a, an absolutely stunning experience that I'm grateful. I'm just so grateful to have had that. Because there's a part of me that thinks about my trip to the British Isles. And I think, you know, a lot of it is a blur. I think I was the right age to experience it. Because it wasn't like I was a little kid. Where I couldn't fully appreciate it. But it's a lot to take in. Going to a place that's that old. It's a lot to take in. But Edinburgh Castle, while I can't remember every little detail, every little nuance, I remember the feeling of being in Edinburgh Castle. And the wind was certainly there. You know, the wind was intense. To the point that it moved you. And uh, with the, the wind tonight, you know, I think before I go to bed, I'm going to take a look outside. And even that sounds scary to me. That sounds scary. Not just surveying the damage, but just the idea of exposing myself to the wind. Not that it's so not that it's like seventy miles an hour and is gonna blow me away, but it just sounds a little scary, like maybe I shouldn't step out into it. People talk about ghosts, people think about ghosts, but we got the wind, and we just accept it. We just accept that there is wind, and it can be subtle and it can be life changing. The wind can change your life. Can certainly change your night because it changed my night. And you know what? I was looking at dumb stuff online. I'm not going to share. I'm not going to overshare here. I would even say I was looking at stuff that I shouldn't have been looking at. So sometimes the power going out is good in that way. It cuts off your access to things you shouldn't be looking at. You know, I'm uh, still here. <laughs> you know, that's a, an interesting thing about doing these is... I try to fill in every little space. 
Generally, when I record an episode, I try to fill in every little space, but I'm sitting here in my chair. It's a leather chair. And uh, my mom had actually bought it for me many years ago with the intention of giving it to me when I had a house that was big enough for it. And the guy that we bought it from, I went with her to get it. I was probably 19 or 20. And the guy we got it from was, I think, a client of hers in real estate. And he was an old guy. He was an older guy, white hair, skullet, glasses, kind of an old hippie. And he said he bought it in the 70s because he saw an ad in a magazine that showed a guy in a very similar chair sitting, listening to a record player with speakers in front of him. And he was sitting in this type of chair and his hair in the advertisement was completely being blown back by the speakers. Like the music was so loud and intense that it was blowing his hair back. And he saw that ad and he was like, I need to get that kind of chair. And what's funny is it wasn't a chair advertisement. I believe it was a an advertisement for the speaker system. But he saw it and he wanted that chair. And it's kind of funny talking about this with wind in mind. Because his uh, the, the image was a guy having his hair blown back. So it's almost like the speaker was creating wind. The music was creating wind. But yeah, wind does tend to be the element that I notice the most. But you can't see it. You can't see it, but you notice it the most. Because you think about lightning, you know, thunder and lightning, where I love lightning. I love thunder and lightning. But it generally doesn't affect you. Generally, you don't get struck by lightning. Sometimes it hits somebody. Sometimes it hits something. It always hits something. Every time you see lightning, it's going somewhere. But as they often say, you know, the the chances of lightning hitting you are blah, 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 point, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, it's very unlikely that you will experience lightning directly. But yet wind is everywhere. When there is a windstorm, everybody is impacted. Everybody notices wind. Everybody feels wind. And it can be nothing or it can be catastrophic. And whenever there's a windstorm here, like I said, you know, I'm nervous the entire night. I hear there are things hitting the house. Sometimes, like I said, I heard tonight, I heard a tree fall. I heard a tree fall in the forest and I can tell you it made a noise. Made a very distinct noise. Pretty sure I heard one down the street too, as I mentioned. And what's interesting about it too is it goes away. There'll be a very intense burst of wind and then it seems to go away and it's silent and you wonder, is the wind gone? And then you kind of hear it a little bit in the distance and next thing you know, there's a big gust. But it's very mysterious. It's very mysterious because it's not here all the time. 
and it comes from somewhere. It's not like the air is just sitting there thinking, maybe I'll turn into wind. It comes in and you have a wind storm. You know the the show. This this show. It hasn't been very. You know, it's been it's been very political lately. It's been very cultural. As that friend said, you know, you only talk about. <laughs> you only talk. You, you make sweeping declarations about human nature, culture, and politics. And I don't think she was talking about this show. I don't think she listens to this show. But she was just talking about some of the stuff I was ranting about online. And all of that feels very far away right now. When the power goes out, when the devices go off, except for this magical smartphone, all of that feels very foreign. You know, I watched an interview, I watched a a podcast interview that that QAnon shaman shaman did because I was curious and he's you know he's very far out there you know he said some things I actually agree with more or less but I mean he seemed you know when you speak about a frenzy and this was from some time ago this had nothing to do with the capital but he's he, you know it was funny he's he does some sort of like multi-level marketing thing where he sells these patches that you put on your feet while you sleep. And I didn't really figure out if they're like band-aids or what they are, but they're patches you put on your feet and they're supposed to do something with stem cells and healing and how you can buy them from him, but you can also become a salesman yourself. So I just thought that was funny. And, you know, and I don't criticize that. You know, I don't, I don't criticize even multi-level marketing because I feel like it's like, you know what that is when you get into it. But, you know, when when guys like this come out of the woodwork, it's very easy to criticize them. And not for what he did at the Capitol, but just for being who he is, being eccentric. But he's a great example because he just talked nonstop about psychedelics, which I'm not opposed to. You know, I, it should be obvious. I've said it before. I've used psychedelics. Psychedelics have a power. But I lean away from that. It's been a long time since I've touched psychedelics myself. Every And just about every experience I've had with psychedelics has been kind of spur of the moment. Not that I necessarily took them spur of the moment, but they sort of found me. And I've had profound realizations on them. But to me, it was very material. In the same way any drug, any substance, eating anything, food. To me, it's, it's a very material thing where you ingest this thing and it gives you a certain result. And I think certain people are better off for having used them. But the people I know who have overused them don't seem better off for it. I've known 
a couple people personally who take them who have taken them far too often in my opinion and have developed an attachment to them where it seems to be very much about those they become these proponents of those and for me while i did have certain realizations when i was younger high school early 20s maybe I wouldn't say they revolutionized me. I wouldn't be able to trace anything back to those. I wouldn't trace my epiphanies back to those. Or my current spiritual state. I would uh, say that my current spiritual state comes from what can be experienced through sobriety more than through ingesting some kind of substance. And tonight does feel like a certain return for me tonight, just the circumstances of the last few days. Sunday was definitely a dark night of the soul sort of day. A dark day of the soul sort of night. I was filled with regret, with anxiety, exhaustion, feelings I haven't had in a long time, not like that. And when I say regret, not regret over anything that I said or did or believe. Just sort of a regret, just sort of a general regret that makes, which in some ways is even more difficult. Kind of a regret of the human condition, if I can even say that. And I think I can. I was just sort of regretting the circumstances that we are all in. Just a general regret. And it was strange to watch that guy. It was strange to watch an interview with that QAnon shaman. Because I realized, you know, I had mentioned how somebody posted this sort of Venn diagram meme, somebody I know, a friend here in town, about the crossover between the, the between New Age beliefs and the far right and what they were calling Nazi hippies. And I took it a little bit personally, but I realized they might have been referring to this guy. But to be honest, I found him a pitiable character. Because his whole spiritual platform seemed like kind of a scam. You know, he had a website where he was selling services, consultation. And then, of course, he was selling these patches, this sort of multi-level marketing scheme where you sell patches, but he'll, you can also become a salesman of them yourself. And I read an article about him because I didn't even think to look into him. But then last night, just on a whim, I was like, you know, everybody's focusing on this guy. I want to see what he's all about because he did look formidable. And of course, the articles are like, oh, he lives with his mom. He's unemployed. He drives a beat-up Mitsubishi with a Q sticker on the back. 
His neighbors say they see him dancing on the roof of his mom's house wearing that headdress, wearing that sort of berserker horned headdress. And they see him often walking around wearing it. I have no desire to make fun of a guy like that, though. But again, you know, in the interview that I watched with him, which some people probably wouldn't want, but I wanted to see what he was all about. I was interested. And, you know, he did break into the Capitol. And he deserves to face legal repercussions for that. But to my knowledge, he didn't do anything violent or incite any kind of violence. And yeah, he has connections to things that people find disagreeable. But I try to look at people like that and just see them for exactly who and what they are. And I found him pitiable. Not that I actually have real pity, but I just... He seemed like a guy who he's offering these services to people. He's offering these spiritual services to people. And he's the classic cautionary tale. He's what I worry about being. Not, I don't worry about being him in particular, but the grandiosity that can come from pursuing spiritual beliefs where you suddenly become this master because he referred to himself that way. He refers to himself as some sort of shamanic master, which is just such a trap. And when I talk about these things on this show, you know, I never want it to come from a place where I myself am offering some sort of guidance. I'm describing my own experience when I talk about these things. But you can really get high on your own supply. You can really very easily get high on your own supply. And you see where people become these little gurus all the time. And I don't think, the difference is with this guy, I don't think this guy has a following. I think that's why I find him pitiable. I don't think he has an actual following. And in listening to him and taking a look at, at what services he provided, which are now taken down. They took down everything of his. Big tech took down everything that this guy does. I don't know that that's even necessary. You know, that's that's where these things play their, their hand a little too heavily. I don't know that anything this guy was doing with his... I'm not even going to call it pseudo-mysticism because I got the feeling listening to him that this guy has had mystical experiences. And I'm a firm believer that mysticism is a, a real thing that we can all interact with. I got the feeling that this guy is actually had mystical experiences. I got the feeling his mind has been blown, but I can also see where he's attached to psychedelics. He talked about taking tons of psychedelics, going off about it. But through whatever mystical experiences this guy's had, it seems to have led him down the wrong path. And that's regardless of the fact that he's stored in the Capitol. That's regardless of the fact that he's part of this QAnon. 
just simply seeing him from this interview, which I believe was months ago, I got the feeling he'd been led down the wrong path, led down the wrong path by himself, I'm sure. And the performative aspect of it too, where, you know, neighbors seeing him wander around with this, this, uh, horned headdress, seeing him dance on his mom's roof with this horned headdress. What we saw of him in his full regalia, which I admit, you know, there was something striking about that image. Not so much the people around him, but there it was a striking image to see a guy dressed like that stand at the podium of the Capitol building. And I don't when I say striking, it has nothing to do. I mean it's striking in the same way anything is, good or bad or otherwise. And, you know, the feeling I was left with after the interview was over that I watched, he didn't seem dangerous to me. He seemed dangerous to himself. You know, people believe that everybody who stormed the Capitol were dangerous. And this guy seemed to take a, he at least took an opportunity with the photo op. If it came down to it and this guy had the opportunity to hurt one of the politicians who escaped, I don't know. It's hard to know what would have happened. It's hard to know what this guy would have done. He very well might have done something. I don't know. I'm not going to say one way or another. I'm talking about this as objectively as I can. But I did get the feeling that this guy doesn't have a whole lot of hope as he is right now. But, you know, I make an effort not to judge people. I really do. Because my natural state is one of judgment. My natural state is one of criticism. And I... Try to see people for exactly what they are before I reach a state of judgment or reach a state of criticism. And sometimes you can't avoid it. Sometimes you, of course, can't avoid it. But you do see this pushback on mysticism. You do see this criticism of spirituality and the fact that people like this guy I know, this friend of mine, is concerned about the New Age far right and the Nazi hippies. And I hope that doesn't lend itself to greater scrutiny of mysticism. Because I don't see it taking off. I don't see some deeply niche right-wing form of mysticism taking off in a way that is threatening. While my, Bo my Buddhist Republican girlfriend will be intense, she will be intensely enlightened, and she will be intensely conservative, she's not going to be dangerous. 
No, but I, I don't know. I, I understand people's concerns. And I guess I see a certain degree of mysticism as inevitable. And what's funny to see is that the people who seem to reject mysticism, the people who seem to reject spirituality, not just religion, not just organized religion, but people who keep any form of spiritual engagement at arm's length and believe that it's nonsense. You know, I, I can't remember what train of thought I was on here. Um, oh, well, just to, I think that people inevitably take some of these properties in, on. I, I think people inevitably work mysticism into their life one way or another under one name or another. And it's often when you don't recognize what it is that it consumes you. Because some of what people call the truth or facts, right and wrong, good and evil, is insanely mystical. In the same way that Conspiracy theory is something that always comes from somebody pointing a finger at somebody else. While there are people who just, they're interested in conspiracy theories and they recognize them as conspiracy theories and they would tell you, oh, I heard about this conspiracy. They enjoy reading about it as entertainment. While there are people who have that sort of approach, almost a meta approach where they're aware of what they're paying attention to and into. Anybody who truly believes in a so-called conspiracy theory doesn't see it as a conspiracy theory. They might see it as a conspiracy, but they wouldn't categorize it that way. And right now, leftist ideology is full of conspiracy theories. Right-wing ideology is full of conspiracy theories. And yet they both point the finger at each other and say, you're a conspiracy theorist. Russiagate. Election fraud. Even to some degree, the way that racism is talked about. Well, I wouldn't deny that there are forms of racism. Some of the ways that it gets talked about is very mystical. And isn't evidence-based in the same way that these pro-science people demand evidence. It's based on a feeling, an intuition, a general perception. And I would never deny somebody their right to see something that way. But it can certainly veer into what one might call a conspiracy theory. And for me personally... I try to be aware of that. I try to be aware of how easy it is to just, you know, as someone, I would say, I put it this way, as someone who relies on his intuition and can't always depend on it, but who does rely on it to a large degree, 
I have to work. I have to work things into my life. I, I have to work ways of thinking into my life that balance that out. And while I am a mystical person, you could say, while I am a spiritual person, I deliberately bring elements into my life that balance that out. Does that mean I have it all figured out? Does that mean I know exactly what I'm doing? No, of course not. And that comes to mind when I saw this guy offering services, offering these patches that you put on your feet that stimulate stem cells, stem cells while you sleep. That's not preaching what you need. Maybe it feels that way to a guy like that. But my entire philosophy is preaching what I need. Here is what I've learned. Here is what works for me. Here is my experience. And I can't even share the totality of my experience. Sometimes I feel like I even go a little bit far with it. Not that I, per not that I go far within myself. But I feel that I sometimes maybe say more than I need to say about those things. And I'm not afraid to say them. Like, I don't feel that I violate some sacred oath. I don't believe that I kill the magic when I talk about certain things. Although I do think that can happen. I sometimes think, you know, maybe I don't need to say this to people. You know, I didn't become comfortable using the word God until the last year or two. Even though the word God was in my head, I would say going back to age 19, maybe a little bit earlier. I think I was starting to come to know that idea in a certain way. I think that I was big, beginning to develop a personal idea of what that meant in my later teenage years. But I don't think that I was willing to accept it. And there are many things in my life that have been churning inside of me and I'm only willing to let them come out with time. Maybe a certain experience. You know, my mom passing away a little over a year ago, I do feel that that opened the doors in terms of my comfort level. Because what was so profound about that is I had been so superstitious about these things. Well, I didn't necessarily have all of these rituals and all of these little ceremonies I did. I would say a lot of my sense of ritual and ceremony was quite mundane. Mm. What was so fascinating when my mom died was that I realized the superstition is completely unnecessary. Yet it started to come back. As time passed... I started to become superstitious again. And I found myself lately being very superstitious. Especially when it comes to 
doing things a certain number of times, which sounds like OCD. That sounds like obsessive compulsion. I don't have anything like obsessive compulsion, but, you know, I've mentioned before threes. And my friend Anna was over the other night, and I didn't know this about her. You know, she's been my friend for many years. She's Batty's mom. I got Batty from her. And she was telling me she had a synchronicity with her new boyfriend where their favorite numbers are both three and nine. And she and I had never discussed that before. And I was like, wow. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say those are my favorite numbers, but I use both of those numbers. Not six, but there are certain superstitions, certain little mundane rituals where I will do something three times or nine times, and six doesn't feel right. For whatever reason, my superstition involves the number three and the number nine, my own little rituals I do. And like, it's not OCD. It's not like I need to turn the light switch on and off three or nine times before I leave a room. I'm talking about just little things that I won't go into here. And I've talked about the importance of three on a compositional level, the rule of thirds. But there's other little ways that it works itself in. So it was very fascinating to hear this from my friend, and it had never come up. But lately, I've been very focused on those numbers. Lately, I've been very focused on three and nine. And somebody would probably say, oh, you're losing it. You're losing your mind. Well, I'll tell you, if I lost my mind, it was a long time ago because this is nothing new. And what has me thinking about this is just the way that the need for superstition and ritual has crept its way back in. Because when my mom died, I had this thought where I was like, I will never need superstition or ritual ever again. Because life itself is that. Life itself is the sole ritual. And so you don't need to frame it. You don't need to create these micro rituals within the larger ritual that is life. Because simply living life living life in the purest way possible. And I don't mean morally pure. I just mean approaching life in the purest terms possible. That itself is enough of a ritual. But it shows you that that's a a temporary state too, because I found that ritual and superstition crept back in. Sure enough, it crept back in. I mean, given that the lights are out, that fits perfectly because I've talked about the lights being off before. This isn't the first episode where I've talked about the, the philosophy of having the power go out because I always talk about how when the power goes out, you always tell yourself that, oh, when the power goes back on, I'm not going to take it for granted. But even if you tell yourself that, you start taking it for granted again within minutes. And sometimes it's a slow creep. Sometimes you slowly, just maybe over the span of an hour, you start kind of taking having power again for granted. But then all of a sudden, next thing you know, it's just back to normal. You're flipping light switches. You're doing all the things you would normally do. You're checking the internet. You're going to websites you have no business going to. 
And I would say it's similar to the experience I had when my mom passed, where when my mom died, it was very similar to the lights going out. Even though I felt very alive, even though I felt very bright, even though I felt like I had this inner light inside of me that was glowing brighter than it ever had, and in some ways it felt like her death, her li- the, what remained of her life when she died, transmitted that energy to me. That's how it felt. You know, I'm not going to say that's something you can measure. I don't care what the science world would have to say about that. That was the sensation I felt. But despite the fact that it was a very illuminating experience, in some ways it was like the lights going out because this part of my life was gone. Something that I didn't take for granted, but had simply always been there was now gone. My mom was gone. And with that, though, in the same way that the power goes out, your entire world changes. Like right now, sitting here in a completely black house, sitting in the corner of a house that is completely black, and yeah, I could light candles, turn on the flashlight, but you know, for all intensive purposes, there's no light in this house. It's incredibly pure. This is a pure experience. My mom dying was a pure experience. So there was no need for ritual. When you have that kind of pure experience, there was no need for ritual. But in the same way that you start to adjust, the power goes back on, you start to adjust. When my mom died, life did start to get back to normal, to some degree. I mean, coronavirus hit like two months later, so things didn't get too far back to normal. But you know what I mean, where it's like your sense, you know, your emotions get back to normal. Two, three months after my mom died, my emotions started to stabilize a little more. But you don't even realize it happening. But what's interesting about that is that I noticed myself getting superstitious again getting ritualistic again, in my own little way. In my own little way is how I would put it. Because as I've said on here before, you know, I'm not, I'm not a particularly ceremonial person. I managed to find ceremony and ritual in small ways. You know, and I can trace it back to... I may have told this story on here before, like any number of stories, but I just want to make sure this is recording. Oh, yeah, still recording. Um, but when I was a kid, I took Taekwondo for a few months. It was at the local gym, and it was taught by a guy who looked like Dave Coulier. <laughs> he looked like Dave Coulier, and he was built like him, too. Like, this wasn't some, like, super fit guy. It was basically Dave Coulier in a Taekwondo, is it called a gi? Is that a gi? I don't know. I don't know what it's called. The Taekwondo outfit. And you had to buy a uniform to wear, you know, of course, the Taekwondo white, uh, you know, kind of a robe with pants. And it's made of a, out of a very specific material. But the pants I had didn't really fit me well. They were always falling down. I guess I could have gotten another pair. But my mom was like, you know what, like, I'm going to get you a white pair of sweatpants, which is kind of incredible. 
You don't see pure white sweatpants very often, but my mom found a pair of pure white sweatpants. And so I started wearing those to my Taekwondo classes. And they were very comfortable and they didn't fall down. And I'd worn them for a while. I wore them to the class for a while. And there was one day, though, where the instructor was, uh, he may have been showing me how to do a certain kick. So he got down on his knees and he was kind of like lifting my leg up, something to that effect. He had some reason to be down on his knees. And he looked over at my pants and he reached over and he just, he grabbed them a little bit and he kind of rubbed them between his forefinger and his thumb and he goes, what's this? And I told him, oh, my pants didn't fit, so I got these sweatpants. And he just kind of, he, he looked disgusted, you know, he, he kind of just like shook his head and he was like, you need to wear the uniform. And I understand that that's part of it. I understand that, I mean, there's a spiritual aspect to martial arts and the uniform is important. The uniform has significance. I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly what it is. I wouldn't be able to tell you. I mean, I, I was only in Taekwondo for a few months. They'd already sold me the pants. So it wasn't like he was looking to get money out of me or something like that. It wasn't like I didn't buy the Taekwondo pants and just wore sweatpants instead. Like, it wasn't like he was trying to get money. But to him, it was important that I wear the pants. But why? And going back to meditation, it's kind of how I feel about that, too, where I'll meditate on the couch. Like, I have a certain posture. You know, I put a pillow behind my back so that my back stays straight. I cut my hands together. I sort of put my legs in something of a diamond shape with the soles of my feet touching. But I don't do it on the ground. I don't sit cross-legged on the ground. I don't sit on a pillow. I have back issues. I'm sure I could develop a way to do it, and I know that would be proper. But for me, I don't feel that it's necessary to do that. I don't necessarily need to follow the exact ritual or ceremony. Maybe there will be a point where I do. Maybe if I were to go to some Zen monk for instruction, he would... In the same way my Taekwondo instructor reached over and felt the material in my sweatpants and shook his head, you know, maybe a, a true Zen master would see the way I meditate and say, no, no, you don't sit on the floor like the rest of us. But you know what? I would bet you a real Zen master would say, as long as you know what you're doing. As long as what you are doing reinforces the practice, as long as your intention is right, that is right. I mean, what do you do if you're in a wheelchair? Oh, guess what? If you're in a wheelchair, you can't practice Buddhism. Oh, if you're in a wheelchair, you can't meditate. Oh, you'll never be Zen. You'll never be Zen if you're in a wheelchair. Too bad. I think you can meditate even in a wheelchair. Maybe people in wheelchairs meditate more than anybody, involuntarily. I don't know. But I look back at that Taekwondo experience, 
And I think in some way, you know, I, I've always been unorthodox. In that case, it was pure comfort. In that case, I didn't want my pants to fall off. But doesn't that explain so much about, you know, our approach to ritual and ceremony sometimes? Like, doesn't, don't those practical needs work their way in to our relationship to ritual and ceremony? Where it's like, sometimes it just doesn't fit. Sometimes the robe just doesn't fit. Sometimes the beads are just uncomfortable. Something to keep in mind. And sometimes you can get so preoccupied with decorating yourself. Sometimes you can get so preoccupied with your furred helmet with horns and these multi-level marketing scheme patches that you put on your feet to stimulate stem cell growth. And you get hijacked through that. So I don't know, you know, I, I feel that I've been less spiritually focused in recent months. As I said in a recent episode, I, I do feel that I've been hijacked. But I think this last weekend was important for me in many different ways. In many different ways, it felt like a, it felt like something came to a head. And I don't feel that anything was lost. I don't feel that anything was truly lost. And if things can come to a head in your own internal self and in your interactions with other people, and you don't feel that anything was truly lost, I think you can only gain from that. I think you can only move upward. I can tell you that it feels really good to not have power right now. Although I have this smartphone that I'm recording into, that sounds like power to me of some kind. But just sitting here, following a meditation, listening to the wind, being a little bit scared. Being excited. Feeling at peace. At peace. That all feels right. Being quiet feels right. Although I felt it was important to talk a little. I find that it's rare that I have a desire to record one of these when I'm in this state of mind. And when I describe this state of mind, I'm usually not in this state of mind. And even talking about it now, I'm removing myself from that state of mind a little bit. Because that's what happens. Anytime you disrupt this, the silence, anytime you destroy that empty space to invoke the great Black Sabbath, destruction of the empty spaces is my one and only crime. 
But as that Zen line that I like to quote says, someone who practices Zen meditation even once wipes away beginningless crimes. And I feel that that quote goes very well with the Sabbath lyric. One who practices Zen meditation even once wipes away beginningless crimes. And that is so much of the mystical, so much of the spiritual. That balance between destroying empty spaces, therefore committing a crime, as Geezer Butler knew. But you balance that out by finding ways to wipe away beginningless crimes. The power going out feels like forced meditation. And in that situation, you can easily sit there thinking, When's the power going to go back on? 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 And because we do have these magical little smartphones, you can easily waste your battery power looking it up. You can easily go to the, the energy website, your local, you know, P, we have Puget Sound Energy. You can easily, easily go to that website and like, Oh, when, when do they expect the outage to be done? And it's different if you're, it, you know, I think it's different during the day. It's different during the day when you have things you might need to do. There might be practical things you need to do that involve power. There is something darn special about losing power at night in a windstorm. There's something darn special about what's going on in our world right now. I don't know if you can hear that wind, but here comes another gust. And you know, 2020 is over. And before the end of the year, I was talking on here about people being like, bye-bye 2020, hello 2021. And now I'm starting to see people share things like, oh no, 2021 has already felt like a year itself. 2021 has already felt like a year itself. And I would say, what did you expect? What did you expect from 2021 so far? Expect nothing. Just like 2020, expect you should have expected nothing from that too. And that doesn't mean do nothing. Do what you can. Plan things, do things, you know, even if the, even if the plans don't work out. You can have goals. But don't expect anything. Don't expect anything from this year. 
But I think you can stop and ask yourself sometimes, what is this? What is this that we are all experiencing? You can be astonished by that. If you hear a tapping, I'm just trying to make sure. I don't even know where my phone is. Okay, we're still going here. I've been going for a while here. It's later than I thought. What is this? You can ask yourself that, though. And I think that that's a helpful question. And you may come up with different answers, but you don't need to come up with an answer. Because the answer is everything that you experience. Everything you don't experience. Because you are participating in something in which you are constantly experiencing something. But you aren't experiencing everything. But someone else is. Something else is. Not just humans, but from the smallest organism to the largest. We are experiencing everything. And you are a part of that, and what you are experiencing is a part of that. And that is phenomenal. And it's funny to me that the word phenomenal is, it's like saying awesome. Or cool. That's phenomenal. Oh yeah, I went to the concert the other night, it was phenomenal. But think about what that word actually means. Phenomenal. Life is phenomenal. Life itself is a phenomenon made up of smaller phenomena. It is phenomenal. And as much as it can inspire you to feel a sense of grandiosity, and I flirt with that. I like who I am. Even the things that I don't like about myself, I manage to like that they're there. But that said, you can easily lead yourself to feeling like you're some kind of master. Oh, I've got it all figured out. Listen to me. Pay for my services. Buy my book. Listen to my album. Look at my picture. Read my words. Listen to what I'm saying to you. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But don't expect other people to care. But don't assume people don't care. Don't be a victim of emptiness. It's very easy to be a victim of emptiness. 
where you don't feel that you are getting something. You don't feel that you are getting what you think you want. And so you become this victim of emptiness. You are somehow in the void. You might not even be noticing what's going on. You might not notice how hard people are paying attention to you. And sometimes the best thing is for nobody to be paying attention to you. There are moments in my life where I wish that I was getting attention for something, where I wish I was getting credit for something, and looking back, I'm glad that I didn't receive that at the time because I wasn't ready. And who's to say that I'm ready now? I'm not. I'm still here. <laughs> I'm still here. I feel like I've entered a, a state of meditation just right now, completely involuntarily and I wish it could be properly translated to this. I wish that it could be properly translated to audio. But you know what? It's totally fine that it can't be. Because that's the reality of all these things that I get into sometimes. You can't translate that experience to somebody else. You can describe it if they're interested. You can compare notes. You can tell people that it is possible. And it's up to them whether or not they want to believe you. You can certainly believe yourself, though. And that seems to be a big part of the battle, is believing yourself, believing your own experience. We get so caught up in self-esteem. We get so caught up in being acknowledged. We get caught up in what people think about us, but what we think of ourselves. And what we think of ourselves is often based on what other people think of us. And here comes that wind again. 
I mean, how do you describe wind without using the word wind? It sounds like wind. Sure sounds like wind. And you know, it's funny too, for as much as I've been talking wind up, which I don't know that it needs, but as much as I've been praising the element of wind here, the power of wind, the occult energy of wind. I don't even know that I would say that wind is pleasurable to me. Like, well, I did say that there is a purity, there is something refreshing about it. The feeling of, I do like the feeling of wind. Like, I don't necessarily love the sound of wind. Like, as somebody who has a background in experimental music, where there's lots of natural tones and unnatural tones, I often avoid experimental music that sounds like wind, because it seems like it's usually unintentional. And maybe it's that nothing can quite recreate the true sound of wind. Because it's not a low-end sound, it's not necessarily high-pitched. It's difficult for me to describe. It is so physical, though. It is a sound that you hear and it sounds like movement. But it looks like nothing. And when you look out the window and you say, it's windy out there, you're not actually seeing the wind. You're seeing other things react to the wind. You're seeing other things respond to the wind. And that's one of the things that makes it so impressive. And I think about the wind sometimes too, because it's still there when everything else is gone. It's there in the desert. Where there is only rock, there is wind. You look at Edinburgh. I was talking about Edinburgh Castle. And how it's this stone structure built on a rock, and there's wind. The wind is there. Even where there's no life, you can find wind. How can you not be astonished by that? How can you not be in love with that? How can you not be terrified by that? How can you not want that?
to be sitting here in 2021 knowing that everybody is so upset. I mean, I was thinking about that earlier, that everybody right now is so unhappy. At least in America. I'm speaking as an American here. Nobody is happy. Of course there are people who are happy, but I mean, as a whole, politically nobody's happy. And politics have infected everything to such a degree that socially, I believe few people are happy. I feel pretty good. Sunday was a dark day for me. I can tell you I was not happy on Sunday. But you need days like that. You need to feel like shit sometimes. You just don't want to make a habit of it. You just don't want to reinforce it. Sometimes catabasis can be a single day. Sometimes catabasis can be an hour. But don't assign it any words or names or diagnoses. Don't call it a depression. Don't even call it sadness. I mean, you know probably from experience that sometimes when you are happy... Calling yourself happy makes you less happy. It brings you out of that experience. I could sit here and I could list off a thousand things I'm worried about right now. I could tell you a thousand things that are on my mind that I'm worried about. Personally... my own self, the things that I have to take care of in my own life, things going on in my friends, family, loved ones' lives, strangers' lives, acquaintances' lives, politically, socially, environmentally. But right now I'm in a completely dark house and there's nothing I can do about it. I'm in a completely dark house with wind can't even finish the sentence. I'm in a completely dark house with wind. And it is oh it is so beautiful. I couldn't ask for anything else but this. And that's not hippy-dippy. It's nice to be in a position where all I can do is this. And when life gives you moments where you can access this kind of clarity, sober clarity, untouchable 
barely knowable clarity. As for me personally, when I experience moments or periods of clarity, I realize I don't know much. Not just when it comes to my information database that I have inside my head, but I don't even know much about what's going on right here, right now, and why would I want to? I'm sitting here in a dark house with the sound of heavy wind. What else do I need to know? What else do I need to do? Sometimes the only information you need is wind. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children